0: Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at
1: this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here.
2: They're not using just weights and majors.
1: He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage your Bible as interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as
2: shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain.
1: You Ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. The show where... uh, What is it? (laughs) The show where theology matters and scholarship counts. My name is Caleb... and My this name is, is actual Bang. reality. That's right. So, for all of our listeners who have actually heard what's been going on, you just got a free little bit of the Robin Caleb show that no one else will, will ever hear. Isn't that exciting?
2: That's kind of sad because it had the awesome story.
1: Well, whatever. Um, I, don't I really weep
2: care. for those who missed it.
1: <laughs> um so guess what we have uh we have something special for everybody too and i don't think people realize this but uh we've decided that since the interview with michael gonzalez went so well the the week that uh the week that rob was gone um it went so well that we decided we were going to going to We're gonna change we're, the name to the rob
2: and michael show that's exactly
1: right <laughs> sorry <That> is, Caleb. <laughs> yeah, i'm out i'm out <laughs> Uh now <laughs> we decided that we'd have the Peanut Gallery stay with us now and the uh, Peanut Gallery being Michael Gonzalez. So what up, Mike? How's it going, brother? Good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Loud enough here? Yeah. Sweet. Love it. All right. right well, I'm good at
3: talking about myself. we'll see if we <laughs> contribute to the show.
1: <laughs> well this uh this has been uh this has been a interesting morning, but we've okay, so we'll we'll start again with Reform Theology. Now, we tried to start the Rob and Caleb show. Something was going horribly, drastically wrong with my startup disk. So I restarted it. It looks like everything t- seems to be working now. My computer's quite hot, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, it was running very, very... Uh, uh, something was going wrong. Anyway, so let's get back to it. So we've been talking... Uh, last week we talked about um, the five points of Calvinism and actually just Reformed Theology in general, right? And we,
2: re- we recognize that if we get one more P, we can rearrange the letters and we'll get pulpit
1: <laughs> wow dude yeah you are just you, you, that's all we
2: need is another f- p firing on on the pulpit. bad
1: joke cylinder is is at full force today you too drink from a Water from a source <laughs> mud. Okay, so uh, so what we're doing is we're we're stepping back from our critique and bashing of the uh, messianic Hebrew roots movement, and we're looking at foundational theology. Now, so what we're trying to do is look at reform theology. And uh, we're trying to basically see what we agree with, what we disagree with. So this show is going to focus on the five points of Calvinism, but specifically on the first of those points. To do that, I think we have to get a little bit of an idea of what Calvinism is. Now, Calvinism is probably the bad term. And as we said this right before everything went haywire moments ago, um, what we're really looking at is the doctrine of grace. It can also be known as tulip. Uh, also known as um, Augustinianism, and because uh, Calvin was just the one that actually had a name attached to it, but Augustine preached this from the third century, and so on and so forth. So anything else to add to, to the intro of this new show before we go on and uh, is ever I should just ask this, is everybody hearing us chat room say something back to me okay so Let's look at some of the uh, some of the history of what would I would consider the foundation of reform theology. That is the five points of Calvinism, or the doctrine of grace. Okay, so in sixteen ten, I'm reading by the way from the five points of Calvinism defined, defended, and documented. At this point, I'm just looking at. Uh, I'm just looking at history, okay? So what we're looking at is in 1610, just one year after the death of James Arminius, a Dutch seminary professor, his followers drew up five articles of faith based on his teachings. The Arminians, as his followers came to be called, presented these five doctrines to the state of Holland in the form of a remonstrance, i.e. a protest. The Arminian party insisted that the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism the official expression of the doctrinal position of the Church of Holland be changed to conform to the doctrinal views contained in uh, in the Remonstrants. Remonstrance. Am I saying that right, Rob? Do you know? I have no
2: idea. That's not a word I normally use.
1: Remonstrance. Okay.
2: Remonstrance. Uh,
1: okay. So, uh, and the, the chat room says that we're loud and clear. Thank you. Thank you, chat room. Okay. Going on, the Armenians objected to the doctrines upheld in both the confession and the catechism relating to divine sovereignty, human inability, unconditional election, or predestination, particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the per- perseverance of the saints. They wanted the official standards of the Church of Holland revised on these subjects. Now, you have to remember that since these were the official catechism and confession of the Church of Holland, basically, uh, if, you were, if, <laughs> if you were a citizen... You were upholding these, you were upholding these, right? I mean, that's essentially because the church and state was not separate at this point, basically anywhere. There was no such thing as separation of church and state. The church was the state. So uh, the followers of Arminius they got upset, and uh, they wanted to uh, change this, of course. Okay, so how did they do that? A national synod was called to meet in Dort in 1618 for the purpose of examining the views of Arminius in the light of scripture. Now remember, this is in Holland. uh, And so later, later on, you have the Westminster. This is before the Westminster uh, uh, Synod and all that kind of stuff, right? So the Westminster Assembly is what it was actually called. It wasn't a synod. It was Westminster Assembly, but it was essentially the same thing. And so at this point, England had not, jumped on board with what was going on. This is essentially the birth of, uh, of reform, the foundation of reform theology at the time. The Great Synod was convened by the State General of Holland on November 13th, 1618. Among the 84 Dutch delegates were 18 secular commissioners. Included were 27 delegates from various German states, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. There were 154 se- sessions held during the seven months that the Synod met to consider these matters, the last of which was on May 9th, 1619. Okay, so what were, what were and I, we don't have to go through all these. We'll just go through uh, one, the ones that we're talking about. So t- today, as you might have seen in your show notes, T stands for total. And uh, so what did the Armenians say? And this is in your show notes. I will read them anyway. Uh, so free will, this is their first point. Um, free will or human ability. So uh, the the Arminians brought this forward. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall of uh, the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters his will is not enslaved to his sinful nature the sinner has the power either to cooperate with god's spirit and the regenerated or uh, and be rege- uh, regenerated or to resist god's grace and perish the lost sinner needs the spirit's assistance but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe For faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. So that was the first point of Arminian uh, theology that was presented uh, to Holland. And the response from the Synod of Dort went something like this. Total inability or total depravity. And this is where you get the total for the, yeah. Uh, Because of the fall of man... Uh, I'm sorry, because of the fall, man is unable to himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed he cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ, It takes regeneration, by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. Okay. So those are the... the, I
2: choose B. (laughs) I choose the second.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. That's my choice. Um, um, but, uh, but But we hold to... We hold to reform theology in in this respect. Uh, we so, hold-
2: so, just to clarify, with the T total depravity, the, one of the key things we saw there is the difference between before the fall and after the fall, right?
1: Yeah, and actually, okay, so so this but the fall
2: I- we're we're using we're using a um, or like a two. There's a two phase to the game here. There's the pre-fall Adam and Eve which we would say are, are not they there was no total depravity then the depravity is a consequence that is irreversible the irreversible consequence of uh of the fall
1: so uh, now i i'm going to go off script here a little bit because uh, now this is something that i've just thought of in my in my own mind uh today when we talk about the fall of of adam and eve okay it, now it could be said that Adam and Eve were the only ones who actually had free will. And that, I mean, that's a reformed position, okay? That, that, that Adam and Eve were the only ones who actually had true free will. It was, was unencumbered by anything. They had the ability to choose sin or not sin. So there was, no, there was no sinful nature. However, God sent, well, I shouldn't say he sent, but there was the snake, right? The serpent came. And, like, lured their will. So I guess that isn't really will, right? But what, wouldn't that make it – wouldn't that encumber choice? I guess not, eh? Because they still had the, the free will to say no to it. Well, it definitely influences it. I mean, it, it uh,
3: gives them the idea to, you know –
1: Yeah, it does. But but I guess the question is I, I guess when we talk about free will it's unencumbered will. And I guess the point of T or total depravity is that man is encumbered by the sin nature, right? That's what we talk about when we talk right. about. Right. So
2: Adam and Eve were not in they they were not encumbered by a sinful nature in the same way in any way the same way we
1: are. Right. <clears throat> yeah, agreed. Um, okay, Mike, bring your mic just a little bit closer. You're a little bit far away. Okay, so um, I want to read this. This is from. They were, they
2: were in fellowship with, with the Creator, right? There was yep. no. Uh, it, it says that they were uh, at the very end of. It says they were arumim, which could mean that they were. It could mean they were naked. It could mean that they had some sort of wisdom, and they were lo yit bo They were not. Uh, they were not ashamed. They were in the presence of. They had access to to the holy Creator. So there must not have been, you know, there was no sin. Um, but be- in our situation, there's no one born now that post fall that has unencumbered access to the Creator. We just don't, you know. There's there's a uh, sin in between.
3: And okay. I think we, we see that. I was talking to Caleb about this yesterday. I think we see that in our children. You know, for those of us who have who have children, I mean. I never had to teach my kids how to do anything wrong. I never taught them how to to lie or to cheat. It just it just happens, you know. They we. It, I remember my one year old uh, daughter, my first daughter. There was a little uh, piece of bread or something on the floor, and she was crawling. And she was crawling over towards it. and I said, "No, stop!" And she stopped, and she looked at me, and then, <laughs> and then you know she knew I was across the room, and so she slowly walks over to it, and I kept saying, "Stop! Don't! You better not!" And she reached over and grabbed it and put it in her mouth, and I thought, look at that. I mean, I I didn't have to teach her how to do anything wrong. I didn't teach her that. She learned it on her own. We've got to teach them how to do good. So it's, it's in us. When we're born, it's obvious. And we can see it. For those of us that have children, we can see it.
1: <laughs> no doubt. Okay, so uh, this I, I want to read this real quick. This is from Roger Olson. He, now, he's, he wrote this book against Calvinism. I gave you uh, the reference there in uh, – this is on page 42, but I gave you – it's uh, from Zondervan. And actually, this has been a, a great resource for me to kind Oh, of yeah. Oh,
2: so we should say, Caleb, real quick, there's two books published, like, 2010, 2011, Zondervan. One is Against Calvinism, and the other came out a little bit later for Calvinism. And the guy, Olson, who wrote Against Calvinism, he wrote the foreword <laughs> to the follow-up uh, for Calvinism, right? That's, Did I get that's that right. right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. So this is for, from the, Roger Olson against calvinism. Uh and actually, you know, I don't have a whole lot of I I do and I don't. Actually, should we pay, play a clip first? Want to play a audio clip first? Here we go. Let's play. So, I I don't know if you saw this, Rob, but there was a uh, the uh recent I, I don't know why, but this debate's been raging recently. So, we have uh, Dr. Brown and Dr. White the uh going back and forth a little bit on uh on YouTube videos, and this is uh, Dr. Brown. Be- before we get to uh, Dr. Olson and his definition of Calvinism, uh, let's, let's listen to Brown and uh, White on, on why they are and are not a Calvinist. This is Dr. Brown on why he is not a Calvinist.
0: I'm not trying to settle a debate here or even get into a debate here. I just want to explain why I am not a Calvinist myself. Now, why I'm not a Calvinist. I do see verses about God's predestining plan. I do see verses about God's sovereign choice. But what I see is this, that God in his sovereignty chose to give us a choice to respond, a yes or a no, that his grace works in our lives and we can refuse it or we can embrace it. Now, honestly, I see this from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. I see, for example, in Genesis 6, that God is grieved over the sin of of man to the point that, humanly speaking, he's grieved over the fact he ever made them. To me, it's an odd thing that he destined people to do a certain thing or to be a certain thing or planned out a certain thing and then is grieved over it. I see throughout the Scripture God's desire that we live differently. Even God expressing it at different times. If only you had lived like this, then I would have blessed you. So I see God's ardent desire to bless. I see God's ardent desire to draw us to Himself. I see His pain over our rejection. And I see that this is how He set things up. And when I see over and over choose, 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 Deuteronomy 30. Choose life. When I see in Ezekiel 18 that, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather his desire is that they repent and live. When I see Jesus grieving over Jerusalem, saying, How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under wings, but you weren't willing. When I see in Luke that the Pharisees rejected the will of God for their lives, I see this as a pattern. Ultimately, in the midst of it, God is accomplishing his will. Ultimately, in the midst of it, God is setting about to do exactly what he planned, which is to have a people who will love him and be with him forever. But even when I get to the end of the book, the end of the Bible, Revelation, the 22nd chapter and the 17th verse, I mean, there it is again, the the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come. and, And whoever wishes, whosoever will, the King James, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Okay, so Dr. Brown lays out his reasons of why he is
1: not a Calvinist. Now, even even in that, now I know that we got people in the chat room who are Can I, oh, hold hold to Arminian theology. So I'm trying to be as fair and balanced in my look at these different things as possible. But it's not going to be fair and balanced because I don't hold to Armenian theology anymore. Um, so go ahead, Rob.
2: Well, I was just going to say that I, you know, Dr. Brown obviously very passionate. I mean, you know, uh, about his perspective there and. His, uh, I agree with so much of the scriptures he quotes and and god 's uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, words given through the prophets for example and and at the same time we also have to look at these same scriptures and see what 's the hist what 's the what 's the record if we just read Tanakh, what do we get we get no one ever chooses no one ever there 's always Sinners right only Yeshua didn 't sin
1: well, and we still have so choice. What,
2: what we have to explain is how come there's how come there has never been how come at the same time that we have these passages that Dr. Brown quotes, we have a total history judgment of mankind that all have sinned and fall short. How come no one chooses good that's the th- that's the issue that i 'm not hearing be addressed by uh, Dr. Brown. We can agree on on all these wonderful scriptures, but uh, the, there's more information than just those scriptures. And, wow. and a key part to that, in my view, is the record of the scriptures demonstrates God, God is a giver, and then man takes those gifts, and, and God gave Adam and Eve the garden, right? That was the first one. But God continues to show himself as a giver. He gave the Shabbat and the manna, both were broken or complained against. He gave the Torah, which is broken, right? Over and over again, the, the, the Tanakh reads as a... And even in the Apostolic writings, we have the Gospels, you know, the disciples are... They don't understand Yeshua all the time, and they're in competition with one another, you know? It it just shows what I think of when I think of the T. back to, you know, what we're talking about today, is that there is a an, a depravity here. There's more to the story than... Than just the scriptures that Doctor Brown so passionately cites.
1: Well, let's listen to Doctor White and his response. So this is now. I just took uh, Doctor Brown's uh, whole thing was like I don't know four minutes. Doctor White's uh, whole video was I think six and a half minutes. So they're just giving little snapshots here, and I just I just pulled out a little piece of each one. Well, the doctrine of sola scriptura is based upon the inspiration. Oh wait, hang on. I'm sorry, I pulled the wrong clip. I pulled the wrong clip.
3: What are you looking for? I got just got a question. Go for it. So, does does Doctor Brown say he's uh, Armenian? He
1: holds Armenian theology. Yes,
3: he does say that. Okay, and and so, you know, again, just uh, because of my lack of knowledge, uh, do is it? Do you have to be one or the other, or do we say see people that are shades of of both, or you know, Armenian versus Calvin Calvinist?
1: yeah there are there's uh there are people who don't agree with all five points of calvinism um, some of uh, you, you have people who would call themselves four point calvinists uh, oh, things okay. like that um, okay so let 's see here white calvinists I found it it took me a while but I finally found it let 's see if this is right Michael said well you know God grieves when
4: man sins and he identifies this as being somehow relevant to why he is not a Calvinist. That would assume that Calvinists have no reason for God to grieve, have no basis for saying that God would would grieve. And that assumes that, well, if God ordained it to be that way, then why would he grieve? It's a very simplistic view, but here's the problem. I've said this many times before. The only consistent Arminian is an open theist. Because from Michael's perspective, when God created, he knew exhaustively everything was going to happen. That objection works for an open theist, when you can say God didn't know this was going to happen. I mean, you know, he knew it was a possibility, but he didn't really think that the chances were good that man would fall. But if you're actually you know, orthodox, and and I I don't believe open theism is orthodox, if you're actually orthodox, then you you believe that God does not change, and therefore God knew all of these things, from the time of creation. Now, whether he passively takes in knowledge of these things, that's where one well, of the big issues comes in, is did God learn what the events in time are going to be? Um, or are they the result of his decree? Obviously, I believe they are the result of his decree, and I think the Bible is very,
1: very specific and clear on that. Yeah, so I would agree with that. But um, he, he brings up open theism. This is, uh, this is an... I think he's right it's the logical conclusion to, uh, to Armenian theology. Now I know that Armenians uh, those who hold to Armenian theology would uh, staunchly reject that if you don't know what open theism is, it's the idea that God does not know everything that's going to happen. In other words, God is living inside of time. Uh, the question then obviously arises when we're looking at open theism in the Bible and uh, actually the, the interesting thing about tea, this first thing is that it brings up all these different uh, theological ramifications depending on, uh, no matter which way you go, you have to deal with all these different things. But, of course, when we, when we look at open theism, the question then is, is how did God, if, if you're an open theist, how did God um, uh, enact prophecy? Was it just a good guess? And uh, so, people who are truly open theists, and I'm not saying that all, Arminian, all, all people who hold to Arminian theology are open theists. I'm saying that that's the logical conclusion is that to say that God doesn't, you know, God has not ordained which way that uh, salvation uh, is Is to say that he doesn't know or that he, you know, and I know that the, I know the Arminian argument to that. But anyway, I want to go back to this Olson quote that uh, I referenced, but did not actually get to. So this is from Roger Olson against Calvinism, and he says, uh, the first point of Calvinism, uh, Calvinistic The Calvinist system, rather, sorry, is T for total depravity. This is a widely misunderstood concept. It does not mean that human beings are as evil as they can possibly be. The total is what misleads people to think that. Rather, typically, it means that every part of every human person, except Jesus Christ, of course, is infected and so affected by sin that he or she is utterly helpless to please God before being regenerated, that is, born again, by the Spirit of God. According to Boatner, the natural person before and apart from the regenerating grace of God always freely sins and delights in it because he is an alien by birth and a sinner by choice. The natural virtues of people do not count as good because they are done with wrong motives. Depravity lies, and I think that that Paul says that. Anyway, uh, depravity lies in the condition of the heart inerrant from Adam. Human beings are born with a corrupt nature, but are nevertheless fully responsible for the sins they cannot avoid because of this condition. Botner claims that only quote only Calvinists seem to take this doctrine of the fall, original sin, very seriously. And this is interesting because there's a whole doctrine that goes ar- along with this, which I did not realize until this week when I started uh, diving into this. Uh, he goes on again. Is this strongly pessimistic view of humanity consistent with Calvin's own teaching? Without any doubt it is. Calvin wrote that because of the fall of Adam, quote, the whole of every man is overwhelmed as by a deluge from head to foot so that no part is immune from sin and all that proceeds from him is to be imputed to sin. As Paul says, all turning of the thoughts are enmities against God and therefore death. Okay, so he goes on. I could read on. So basically, uh, the, the point here is that total depravity doesn't mean, yeah, as he said in the in the uh, very beginning, it doesn't mean uh, that the total is what misleads people. Uh, he says it does not mean that the human beings are as evil as they can possibly be. Okay, so agreed. So th- this actually, the interesting part about this is the the fall of man because— the question is, and I, I had a hard time grasping this concept until I read something this morning, but the idea is that if the fall of man uh, made original sin handed down through the father from person to person, then that's not actually free will. It's not giving you the choice. If you have sin passed down, you, it's, you don't have a choice anymore. That's not free will. And so I actually pulled clips from, what's this, Carrington Skelly. This guy has debated, uh, well, has written back and forth against um, Dr. White. And uh, here's how he views original sin. Now, I'm going to read from Olson, who disagrees with him on this, but uh, this is how Skelly, or is it Skelly? Yeah, Skelly puts it.
5: First guy I'm going to say is Justin Martyr. He's around uh, 100 to 150 A.D. Every created being is so constituted, as to be capable of vice and virtue for he can do nothing praiseworthy if he had not the power of turning either way and unless we suppose that the man has the power to choose good and refuse evil no one can be accountable for any action whatever that, that makes sense to me that's what the bible promotes too you're guilty because of the actions you choose not because you were forced to choose them or, someone made you, or something inside of you that makes you choose them. Because you've chosen to do those things. And that's why you're accountable for them. Then we have Tertullian, about the same time, in the 100s. He says, no reward can be justly bestowed, no punishment can be justly inflicted upon him who is good or bad by necessity and not by his own choice. Makes sense. Clement of Alexandria, same time period. Neither promises nor apprehensions, rewards nor punishments are just if the soul has not the power of choosing and abstaining. If evil is involuntary, it just makes sense. I mean, that's what the Bible says from beginning to back, from from front to back, from beginning to end. But you're accountable okay. for your deeds. Paul,
2: you- oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. We're we're account. Everybody's accountable. But okay. but he's 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 trying to take the position that. Paul is trying to silence in romans nine
1: well here here's here's where uh Skelly has yeah, this actually-
2: idea that God might be it is that it to uh like paul quotes the the potter in the clay picture right says who's the potter or who's the how's the pot going to say to the clay or i'm sorry <laughs> the pot say to the potter why have you made me this way in other words he's when we when we bump up against God's sovereign will, there's things that we can't understand and that he clearly does for his glory, just like he says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up. And no, I was looking at this this week. Uh, John Wesley was looking at his commentary there, and he's like, oh, that Pharaoh, what he meant is that Pharaoh had the opportunity to repent there. But, but God had told Abram back in Genesis 15 your offspring, he says, you're going to live to a good old age and die in Shalom, but your offspring are going to be enslaved in in a, a country and then I will judge that country and I'll bring them back out of there. Okay. He says that. So when he brings Israel out of Egypt and he tells Pharaoh, I did, I, I have raised you up to show my glory. That's that's God shaping history and choosing to condemn Pharaoh. How could, how could Pharaoh still have a choice if, if God already had told Abram hundreds of years prior that this was going to happen? That's a mystery because Pharaoh, uh, obviously, you know, we have the whole back and forth there. Pharaoh's responsible for his actions.
1: Sure. Sure. Now, this, Skelly goes back to, so what Skelly here is actually trying to uh, talk about is this, is the issue that the reformers had to deal with. Reformers had to deal with this idea of if, is, if, if the sin nature is passed down through the father to the children, then are babies who die going to hell because they have been born with a sin nature? That's what, that's what this basically goes back to. Do they have a choice? Of course, this is a delicate matter, but still, I want to finish Skelly's uh, uh, clip here. There's only 16 seconds left, and then I have one more clip from him.
5: You'll be, you be accountable on the for what you have done with your, with your life. Uh, and then we have, uh, let's look at Melito around the same time, 170 A.D. So there is therefore nothing to hinder you from changing your evil manner to life because you are a free man, free will. Okay, so what, what this doctrine,
1: what the doctrine is, is uh, referred to as is federal election. So the idea of federal election, in other words, that, that uh, Adam sinned and that sin represented all of us. And the, but then you have federal election also through Yeshua, right? Yeshua died and his, his payment can be applied to all of us. So let's listen to Skelly
5: on Federal Election. But th- this, this doctrine of total depravity or total inability is very directly tied into the idea of original sin. I'll write that on the board for you. Okay? Anytime you're speaking about total depravity or total inability, it really ties very closely into original sin. Now let me give you from the horse's mouth, okay, the Calvinists themselves, what original sin is. Okay, this is this is something taken right from them. Number one. The whole human race sinned in Adam when he sinned. Adam's will was the will of the whole race, so that all men sinned in Adam and rebelled with him when he sinned. Okay? Number two. When Adam sinned, human nature was corrupted, so that all men are born with a sinful nature. Okay? Number three. This sinful nature is the fountain and direct cause of all of man's sins. Man sins by nature and cannot help but sin okay number four because of adam's transgression hang on i want to stop right there for a
1: second one of the reasons that i think that's true is because without the messiah yeshua any work that you do even if it's lines up with torah if i don't eat if i eat if i don't eat unkosher food but i don't have the messiah it's still worthless right
2: well and we know that in in the first century there were other nations that circumcised the males There was, you know, does that mean that they're somehow reckoned as God's people because they practice circumcision? No, of course not, right? So, yeah.
1: Okay, let's keep going with this, though, because Gary's jumping ahead of me.
5: Uh, But yeah, let's, (laughs) in the chat room. Okay, let's keep going with this. All men are guilty, because of what Adam did. All men are guilty and are under the just wrath and curse of God and are liable to the pains of hell forever. Now, let me just say this right off the bat, right? just with that number four. That, that right there totally contradicts the word of God. It says that because of Adam's transgression, all men are guilty. But the Bible says you will not be guilty for any other man's sins. You'll be guilty for your own sins in the day of judgment. And it says they're under the just wrath. Of the but God himself says in a word that that's not just. So if, if that is true, then God himself is being unjust. God himself is being unjust. But, but God says that if you, if you hold someone else accountable in eternity... For someone else's sins, that is unjust. Number five, this is the last one. Even newborn babies open their eyes in this world under the wrath and curse of God. They are guilty and condemned from the moment of their birth. That's what original sin teaches. And in my eyes, this is blasphemy, okay? It maligns the character of God.
1: Okay, so he says it maligns the character of God. Um, But the question that I would have, oh, I lost video somehow. Did you guys lose video, too?
2: Yeah, I lost video.
1: Weird. Uh, Try pressing the uh, video thing down at the bottom. See if there's a line through it.
2: Turn on your video. Make this a group call. There you go. Uh, I can see Michael.
1: Yeah. I can see Michael. I can see myself. Anyway, so um, going going back to Scripture now, I don't understand how, and this guy, Skelly, in in this presentation, he never once deals with Romans. Uh, Romans 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then down in um, uh, 5.16, he says, and the free gift is not like one result... I've never,
3: I've never heard that before. That uh, him applying anyone applying that passage that uh, you know we don't uh, pay for someone else's sin and applying it to Adam. That's that's pretty wild. And even uh, for him to say that that's uh,
2: here's a a, a good passage. If I could add one from Hebrews two, he says he's talking about Yeshua. uh, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself that is Yeshua likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the point is he's tying slavery to sin with a natural fear of death. So in other words, when you're born into a world that people die, you're already culture, everything, you you start having idolatry and all the different things that are in man, just look at the history of mankind's culture. And that's what, that's what we inherit And when we're just born into this world. We inherit a whole mess. And so it's not just, so while it's true, the guy was saying, you know, um, we need to look at what we mean by sin, right? There's There's the individual transgression of God's law. That's one thing. But, There's just the inevitability of everybody's death also that has nothing to do with, you know, I didn't choose to be born, but the guarantee when I'm born is I'm going to die. Yeah. Right? Guaranteed.
1: Well, the other thing thing that you have is that God has, uh, we see within Scripture that God knew people in the womb. So once again, we go back to God's choosing. Anyway. So th- th- and this is why I think that uh, some babies are certainly, uh, uh, you know, taken up to God. So basically what this argument is called is Pelagianism, when we talk about full-blown uh, getting rid of original sin. And so this is in the book For Calvinism by Michael Horton, who I hope will agree to do an interview on this, uh, on this show sometime. Okay, he says, uh, Pelagianism has been identified historically with a denial of original sin and the necessity of grace for salvation. Condemned by several popes and councils, he gives uh, different uh, dates, Pelagianism represents Adam as a bad example and Christ as a good example. God is gracious in that he sets before the human race the opportunity for life or death and has endowed everyone with the power of free choice for good or evil. Through constant exhortation and instructions, one may be brought to repentance and faith and continue in the life of good works that finally merits everlasting life. Then came semi-Pelagianism. semi pelagian did you want to say something? Okay. Seb- no, semi- well, just, just
2: so people should know that these are obviously semi, uh, these, these are scholarly kind of labels trying yeah. to classify. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so There were sem- no original groups with a flag saying, we are the semi- <laughs> semi-Pelagian. Uh, well,
1: there, well, Pelagius was an actual dude. Oh, yeah, right, right. And he had disciples. They were known as, as Pelagians. But the
2: semi, I'm taking the semi. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, okay, so, okay, uh, semi-Pelagianism semi-Pelagia- arose as a modification Although it did not accept original sin, this view taught that the fall weakened the moral nature of human beings so that they required strengthening grace. The initial act of responding to God is due to free will, but grace assists the believer in a life of faith and good works. This is how i see uh, this is how I see traditional armenian theology he 's going to disagree with this, but uh that is uh um, what's his name? Olson's going to disagree with that. Anyway, uh, this view was condemned at the Council of Orange in 529. This council declared that grace is necessary at the beginning as well as throughout the uh, Christian life. Okay, so I'm going to turn the page. Um, Pelagianism arose primarily as a reaction against Augustinianism as the bishop of the North African city of Hippo. The, okay, so, so on and so forth. But then he goes on to talk about Arminian theology. And this is what he says. Uh, at least, as Arminius taught it, Arminianism does not deny original sin or the inability of human beings to save themselves. Nevertheless, Arminians do hold that sufficient, uh, pre, pre, prevenient preven, uh, I can't talk. Prevenient grace is given to all who, uh, all people, to exercise their free will. And election is based on God's foreknowledge of those who will, in fact, cooperate with his grace in faith and good works. Final salvation is dependent, to some extent, on one's cooperation with God's grace. So, the way that I read this, and correct me if you hear it a different way, but the way that I I read this is almost a quasi-Semi-Pelagianism in and of itself. In other words, the fall of man affected everyone, and it gave... uh, And it gave people, uh, they were depraved because of it, right? Okay, so everybody's depraved because of this sin nature. But God gives grace to everybody. Everybody gets grace from God enough to bring them back to almost a zero status. So God gives grace and brings them to this zero status where they can basically choose good or, or evil. That's how I'm reading that that? Do you hear what I'm saying? So he says, nevertheless, I'll read it again. Nevertheless, Arminians do hold that sufficient, prevenient grace is given to all people to exercise their free will. and election is based on God's foreknowledge of those who will in fact cooperate with his grace in faith and good works.
2: So the idea is that God, and then someone put, I think Robert alluded to this in the, in the chat room I think if I heard him right is the idea that there's a difference between just God knowing who will choose what he will in other words God's at the beginning of let's just imagine a timeline this is all hypothetical God's at the beginning beginnings looking it ahead and he knows what everybody's gonna choose so he still grants them free choice but he knows what they're gonna choose and then he plans his but okay his strategy according to how he knows people are gonna choose and then what they see that viewpoint as different, the way I'm understanding it, as different from God just saying, okay, Pharaoh, I'm going to raise Pharaoh up. He's going to resist. He's going to kick. And I'm going to, I'm going to use him, I'm going to use that as a vessel of destruction because I am choosing a particular people and I'm going to um, uh, call them as vessels of glory, uh, of, of my mercy and I'm going to show my glory to those people. And so uh, I'm going to raise up Pharaoh for the purpose of showing my glory throughout all the world, but particularly in the calling of the elect.
1: Okay. For, and that, that,
2: is, that those are two different
1: perspectives. Let's go, let's go back to what you said, though. And I, I, I've, heard, I've heard the same kind of argument from people who believe in Arminian theology. But if God looks forward, okay, and he sees what we're going to choose, is it set then? Is it free will if I can I change it at any point?
2: If God foreknows it.
1: Yeah, but that's the point is that that's what predestination is is that we're predestined. That's why I, that's why I'm, I'm thinking this word choice,
2: this word choice and the word of free will. Here's here's one of the problems. Is that free will is not a term we find in scripture. Right? So that's that puts us right off the bat if we're trying to argue for or against free will this idea of free will. We have to be really. It, we end up going down a rabbit trail of, of trying to define what it is we mean by it. I'm convinced, you know, having read the uh, "Bondage of the Will" by Luther and, and uh, other works, I'm just like, "Wow, I, I don't, I can't see it any other way." I am a, I am a sinner in need of grace, and the biblical model of new life, new creation, new birth, resurrection, is all talking about something that someone does for me. That someone saved me. Not not that I, you know, I was in the situation where no matter, you know, what, I was doomed. Yeah, someone were- from that, from outside that went in, grabbed me, and pulled me out and is now training me to live, to walk differently in this world. That's... Uh, that, now, that's just my, that's one guy's experience, but but that fits so much more with the per- perspective of that our, the will, any will we have is in fact in bondage to slave. We're slave. Otherwise, the word slave doesn't mean slave, right? I mean, that's, I guess that's where I'm coming from. I,
1: well, listen to what, okay, so Roger Olson, the guy who wrote Against Calvinism, he also has this blog, and uh, it's in your show notes, you can, you can uh, go to that site. He says this, he says, contemporary Arminianism is of two minds about original sin and inherited guilt. All agree about total depravity. Every aspect of human nature is corrupted by the fall and incapable of exercising a goodwill toward God, apart from God's supernatural enabling grace. Uh, He says that. Olson says that. But this Skelly guy uh, seems to disagree with that. Now, granted, Skelly might be on the he might be a fringe. You know, I'm not up on who who Skelly actually is. Uh, he runs uh, against, like, against Calvinism or answering Calvinism YouTube page. But besides that, um, all I can say is that Skelly doesn't seem to have the same uh, view as Olson that both views of Armenian of traditional Armenianism hold to uh, t- total depravity. Olson goes on, but some Armenians believe that children are born without any hint of Adam- Adamic guilt. Inherited condemnation is not even acknowledged by them. This would be the case with most Baptist Arminians, as well as most Reformed Baptist. He goes on. What all Arminians agree about is that, that in fact, de facto, contemporary guilt that causes one to go to hell only attaches a presumptuous sinning with, which always occurs with the awakening of conscience. What Baptists call the age of accountability, which is not a specific age, but a stage of moral and spiritual development. Thus, all Arminians deny that any children who die go to hell. It is high Calvinists who have a problem with children. They don't believe baptism saves. It parallels circumcision as a sign and seal of belonging in the covenant. Well, I would agree with that. I don't think that circumcision saves. So what assurance is there that a child who dies is not in hell? Some Calvinists say, quote, there can be no such assurance. Others say children of covenant parents are in the covenant until they are old enough to make their own decision for for or against Christ. But what about children of non-covenant parents? Are all who die in infancy or childhood destined for hell? I know very few Calvinists who will say that, but why? If Adam's guilt is imputed to all people without exception, except for Christ, of course— and not removed by Christ's atonement then surely some children who die go to hell what argument could be given to deny it i have an argument for you it's called election god has elected who he will he does not elect on on age his elect are not chosen by age his elect are chosen who knows why because he's great because of his grace and so to me the idea that if a child dies in the womb or if a child dies right after birth or something like this, it's not up to me. I don't know. The point is, is that it's God's grace. Could he save all children under a certain age? If God wants to, he's graceful. He can do that. He's full of grace. If he if He wants to allow some to not be saved eternally, that is up to him, and he is totally just in doing so. I, I think it's a human idea that... Age somehow has to do with our salvation. We are wicked. We are sinful. And God would be right to damn all of us to hell. And that's the point of his grace. That's why him, his choosing of the elect is, is such a magnificent show of his, of his uh, love and compassion. Because he saved any of us. Thoughts on that Rob or Mike well, well said, well said okay <laughs> um, okay, so then the last the last one the last thing that I have to read here uh, is from Michael Horton. This once again, now, normally we have a lot of uh, a lot of sound clips i I could have pulled more, but honestly, I had my nose in a book pretty much this whole week uh trying to figure out all this kind of stuff because to be honest with you, I'd never actually looked at. All the aspects of what is attached, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, the idea of the fall of man. It never crossed my mind that this would actually have to, that, you know, the T in total depravity would would touch on issues such as uh, such as the fall of man. That, that never crossed my mind. So this has been quite a, a fun learning experience. Um, I'm not sure why I pulled this. Michael Horton in For Calvinism. Once again he says before the fall humankind had the natural and moral ability to obey God with complete fidelity and freedom of will after the fall we still have the natural but no longer the moral liberty to do so when it comes to our fallen condition we all have the natural ability to think will feel and do what we should none of our f- faculties has has been lost we have all of the equipment quote equipment necessary for loving God and our neighbors nevertheless the fall has rendered us morally incapable of using these gifts in a way that could restore us to God's favor. I could choose to dedicate myself to becoming a marathon runner, but I cannot choose to dedicate myself to God apart from his grace. Even in our rebellion, we are e- exercising the very faculties that God created good, yet we are employing them in a perverse way. I, man, I he, I he took the words right out of my mouth. We are not weak in our... A misuse of these gifts, but willful and energetic. The fall has not taken away our ability to will in the least, but only the moral ability to will that which is acceptable to God. It's not a question of whether we choose, but of what we choose. The Pharisees thought that they were free, but G- Jesus told them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Sounds kind of extreme, doesn't it? Yet it plumps the depth of our condition. It plumps the de- depth of our condition. Pardon me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of, of greed and self-indulgence. Our choices are determined by our nature. We choose what we desire, and we desire what is most consistent with our nature. If we are bound by sin, then it is not a natural ability that we have lost— but a moral ability. We can, we can only choose sin and death and we really do choose. And we, and we really do choose it. And he references John eight 44 until God liberates us from this bondage. We admit that man's condition while he still remained upright was such that he could incline to either side, but inasmuch as he has made clear by his example, how miserable free will is unless God both wills and is able to work in us. What will happen to us is if he imparts his grace to us in this small measure. Again, it is not that the will is rendered inactive by sin, but that it is bound by sin until grace restores it in a one-sided, unilateral, and unassisted divine act. Agreed. Um, Okay, did you pull anything else there, uh, Rob? Nope, nope.
2: Got some great discussion going on in the chat room. Which I know the chat the, nice.
1: the chat room's having a heyday.
2: Yeah, and what I really appreciate is that that we've got people who are engaging here with us week by week and they're not all on the same page, but they're willing to continue and, and ask questions and quote scripture and it's, the what I've seen is that people are just being really, really awesome and kind with each other.
1: Yeah, it's very good. Um, you know there at some point we 're going to have i think after we get through the five uh, the five doctrines of grace as they are so termed, uh, once we get through those five i think we 're going to have to do an exposition on and maybe a study in the the uh, chapter nine of of romans there 's a lot that both sides have to say about chapter actually i shouldn 't say that i haven 't been able to find much. On uh, on the Armenian side to chapter nine, believe it or not, and I would think I did would- find
2: more in the against Calvinism book. Oh, did you? Here, to give you a snapshot, he says in Romans nine, where he says Jacob I loved, is hated. He, at least this is Olson, is it? He's arguing that the Armenian perspective is that he's not talking about people; he's talking about nation, and not in- individuals, but like nations, so that. By Jacob, he means Israel. By Esau, he means Edomites, right? In other words, but the problem there is that you talk about Pharaoh. Paul brings up Pharaoh, and that's an individual. (laughs) I brought you up for this purpose, right? That I would, you know, so, um, yeah. It'll be a good discussion. So,
1: so, uh, now, I know that in the chat room we have most people agreeing with us. Robert... I appreciate your comments uh, greatly. I hope that you continue to come back uh, to the chat room and, and give your comments because they actually, uh, you know, I think it's good to have both sides represented. Uh, but Robert brings up, uh, what did he bring up? Hang on, it just went away. First Timothy two four, who wants everyone to be saved? I think this is something that we'll have to talk about at some, at some point as well. Um, and we can look at both sides of it. Uh, the nice thing about having accordances is that we have uh, Wesley's commentaries I looked at Wesley's commentaries on, um, what was it? Uh, I think it's towards the end of 6, where uh, he talks about sanctification. Anyway, um, all that to say, uh, yeah, so we, we have some study that needs to be done as well. Now, I know that our show technically has only been airing for 57 minutes. Normally, we try to go well over an hour. However, we had such technical difficulties, and I think... The first secret part of our show will, stay, will remain secret. So, uh, for, the, for those who are watching on YouTube uh, or listening via the podcast, uh, then I'm sorry that you are getting shortchanged, but that's just the way it goes. Anything else that you want, you guys? I would just say, say. That
2: the First Timothy uh, 2, excellent passage. I think we'll have to, we will get to that in this larger discussion. Today, I think, and maybe a little next week, we're talking about. The big T, you know, talk trying to clarify what is, what do we mean by total depravity? What's what are helpful ways to understand that concept, and what ways are not helpful? Yeah, and I, I think, think I think we'll job. have
1: to, I think we'll have to sum up total depravity again next week um, because I I think that my thoughts are still kind of be, becoming concrete on exactly because I know what I believe and I and I can read what the confession of you know the synod of dort wrote against the arminian confessions uh and and in that i know what i believe however seeing all of these other aspects to it has has really uh you know it's been fun because it's kind of made me have to i don't know it's it's had me uh, thinking in different theological realms that i haven't had to think in before and so it's been it's actually been very fun and i know that uh, about two years ago we actually went through uh the history of of uh the five, the five doctrines yeah, with, of grace, yeah. uh, but certainly not in, in depth like this. Uh, Michael, anything else you want to say?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, coming out of the Catholic Church back in uh, 2000, um, I joined a uh, charismatic messianic community, and it was very uh, Ar- Armenian. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought this is how all messianic communities were, and so I was there for nine years, and I got um, all of this, all of this teaching and understanding. And then it wasn't until we we left that community and started a congregation that I became friends with a couple of Reformed pastors and started attending uh, uh, their services on Sunday and getting uh, some more education and then even uh, uh, studying more uh, with uh, Torah resources information that I began to understand and learn the other perspectives the the uh, you know the the the, the Calvinist uh, point of view which to me makes 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 sense, and it's the direction that we've been going. And so, for the past six years, you know, I was on my own doing these teachings or, or learning this stuff by myself. And so now, it's it's great to be here and to hear you guys. You know, bring up things and even you know point me to the resources. I, I appreciate the uh, the uh, uh, the notes and the books here that that you're referencing. That uh, you know, not only for myself but other people can uh, can get this information and and do their own studies. It's great
1: yeah we, we, we certainly hope that uh, our you know this is I think honestly, to be completely honest with everybody, I think this study is more for Rob and me. I think we decided to do this study more for ourselves than we did for anyone else. and just it's hope, totally self-serving. Yeah, it's totally self-serving show generally. Yeah, but, but we hope that uh, the people listening are, are gaining something from it, and uh, if you have questions, you have comments or if you want to challenge, of course, Any anytime you want to challenge us, you can do so by shooting us an email. Write us uh, chegg at TorahResource.com. That's C-H-E-G-G at com. You can also write Rob. He's the nice one. R. Vanhoff at TorahResource.com. And if you want to get a hold of the peanut gallery over there, that's Michael. It's M. Gonzalez at TorahResource.com. And actually, he's the nice one out of all of us. (laughs) All right. Well, until next time, uh, we're going to continue our study of the doctrines of grace next week. And for the following weeks, we're going to try to get some good interviews here, too. Uh, We have secured one good interview that will be airing in July. So until next time, we hope that this conversation of the doctrines of grace has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.